Welcome back, beautiful people, to the second hour of Love Babs, Love Talk on Babs Rose Ivy. I am delighted to have Dr. Camelia Lawrence on today because we've been talking about this for like, I don't know, the last couple of years about her coming on and, and talking about her breast cancer health. So listen, um, Dr. Camelia Lawrence uh, is a doctor, a board certified surgeon specializing in benign and malignant breast disease. Uh, she has a fellowship training in, in advanced breast cancer surgery, including skin and nipple sparing mastectomy, uh, sentinel uh, node biopsy, and oncoplastic techniques. Um, she is currently she currently serves as director of breast surgery for the Hospital of Central Connecticut and Mid State Medical Center, responsible for further developing their breast programs. And she serves as assistant professor of surgery at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine, uh, where she works as medical students and surgical residents. Uh, nurturing her personal interest in teaching the future generation. Welcome, Dr. Lawrence. I am happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so listen, the fact that you are model beautiful. <laughs> you are kind. And, 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 run, and runway ready all the time. <laughs> Aside from all that, you are a, a, a breast surgeon. And, uh, and now that uh, October is uh, Breast Cancer Awareness, and I'm struck by how many women I know, Dr. Lawrence, who still are afraid to go get their breast examined, who still don't want to get that early detection. Um, talk to us about what that, what that looks like and, and how we could overcome that. You know, it's it's such a challenging um, mindset, uh, right? Because it's rooted in fear. And cancer, I often say, is a fear monger. And I think um, what we really need to do is dispel some of those myths about mammography. And I often hear them in my travels when I do community outreach. It's, it is painful. Uh, mammography is associated with increased risk of uh, radiation and, and cancer elsewhere. Um, so it's really education, educating the masses and really empowering them and helping them to understand that we don't have a cure for this disease. And until we identify a cure for breast cancer, early detection is our best ammunition. You know, but there are about 3.8 million breast cancer survivors here in the United States alone. And part of it has to do with advancing treatment. But to be honest with you, a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're able to catch this disease at its earliest stage when it's most treatable. And for black women, uh, when we get breast cancer, oftentimes we die, right? Like it's, a dis it's, dis it's such a disparity yeah. in, in, in how we get breast cancer and our treatment of breast cancer and our survival rates than other people. Absolutely. You know, and in Black women, we get breast cancer less frequently. But like you said, when we do, the mortality rate is much higher. So statistically, Black women are almost twice as likely to die of their breast cancer diagnosis. And it's a, it's a complex issue, but some of it is rooted in one late stage of diagnosis. You know, a woman who's diagnosed with very early stage breast cancer, stage zero breast cancer, also known as DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ. The five-year survival, for example, it's about 99% for the majority of women. In contrast to a woman who's diagnosed with stage four breast cancer, this is breast cancer that's left the breast, it's beyond the lymph nodes and can be found in other organs of the body. 
that survival number drops precipitously to 25%. I mean, look at that gap from 99% to 25%, and it's all rooted in the stage of diagnosis. The biology of the tumor also plays a role. Um, you know, women are more likely, black women in particular, are more likely to get a type of breast cancer that's called triple negative breast cancer. Mm. And what we know about triple negative breast cancer is that it confers a more aggressive tumor biology. There's an increased risk of local recurrence, so the disease coming back. There's also an increased risk of distant uh, disease, so the disease infiltrating other organs, such as the liver, the bone, the brain, or even the lung. Um, so the biology of the tumor is more aggressive, and we tend to see that more commonly or more frequently among black women. But there are also socioeconomic barriers, right? Um, some of that also has to do with biases as well. Women, whether they're able to get the treatment that they need in their local community, is it accessible? Are they able to complete the entire treatment recommendation? Because we know that the successful management of a breast cancer patient goes well beyond surgery. In some cases, surgery is a second line of treatment. They may need chemotherapy first, followed by surgery. And unless you complete all the recommended arms of treatment, your survival will differ. Um, so that's where socioeconomic comes into play. And also insurance, being uninsured or underinsured, does play a huge role. Yes. And, uh, and that seems to be a conversation now, particularly when we talk about um, maternal uh, health of, uh, of women who are having babies and, and, um, and what that means across socioeconomic uh, uh, stages, that it doesn't matter what your educational background or where you, how much money you have, mm-hmm. and no matter how much health insurance, it's a, it's, it's a combination of all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So talk, talk to me about the, the changes that you've seen over the years in terms of breast cancer uh, treatments and health and all of that, like we've come a long way, I think. Mm-hmm. We, we've come a long way, you know, you t- you, well, from a medical standpoint, we talk about the surgery that you typically do for breast cancer in particular has completely evolved. You know, back in, in the days, you know, the Halstead mastectomy where a woman would have her breast removed, the muscle would be removed. You know, I remember, I think I was perhaps five years out in practice and I, I stumbled across an 80 year old woman who had breast cancer many years ago and she had the Halstead and completely deformed uh, from the surgery itself. And it's no longer that way. We've made several advances surgically. I mean, I have patients now who are genetically at a higher risk of breast cancer and they've undergone formal genetic counseling and testing and determined that they're a carrier of a mutation and they have risk-reducing mastectomies. And what that means is actually as a surgeon, I go in and I scoop out all the breast tissue and you leave the skin envelope and the plastic surgeon is able to reconstruct the breast. And the overwhelming majority of the time, no one can tell except for that patient that that woman has had a mastectomy. So we've made several advances along those lines and her, her drugs or chemotherapeutic options have significantly increased. We are now in the era of what we call precision medicine. We know that no exact tumor is, the same, no two tumors exactly the same. And we're able to look at the tumor biology and tailor that specific treatment for that woman. So we've made tremendous advances. And so, and so do you, do you think, uh, Dr. Lawrence, that we'll see a, a cure? Because I know President Biden has talked about, he believes that we will see a cure for certain yeah. cancers in, in our lifetime, right? Whatever, whatever that looks like. <laughs> I mean, do you, do you, do you feel that way I, as a, as a practicing I, physician? 
I think eventually we will. And, you know, we often among ourselves as, as physicians, we say, you know, in breast cancer world, you know, a surgeon in particular, at least I think eventually at some point we'll move away from surgery. We'll be able to treat breast cancer with medication uh, only. I mean, we've gone away from, you know, doing the mastectomies to now we able to demonstrate that women who have a lumpectomy, which is just removal of the part of the breast with the cancer, uh, followed by radiation, that they do well. We're now doing less surgery, less axillary dissection. Um, there are clinical trials that are out there now that looks at women who have early stage breast cancer, DCIS, and whether they could be treated with cryotherapy to take care of the disease without devoid of any sort of surgical intervention. So we are making progress. I don't have a timeline in terms of when that will happen, uh, which is why our message today is still is that early detection is key. Let's find the cancer at its earliest stage when it's most treatable. And, and we're starting to sort of see more and more men or oh, the conversation of uh, raising awareness around men and breast cancer. Mm. You know, we've had a couple of famous men who have had breast cancer, like Richard Roundtree, uh, mm. who, who talk about this uh, openly. So uh, do you see men in your practice? I do, I do, you know, and, and I, you know, Beyonce's uh, dad, I uh, did an expose on this when he was diagnosed with it because it's sort of a conversation that has not been in the spotlight for quite some time. And the reality is that men do get breast cancer at a significantly smaller rate than women do. In the US alone, we see about one to 2% would translate to about 3000 cases. Uh, yearly, uh, but men do get breast cancer. It typically presents as a lump um, because, or a nipple discharge or skin changes because we don't do routine screening mammography for men. Um, so typically they've noticed an abnormality within the breast. So the message there is that for any man, you know, if you notice any changes in the breast, you should have it evaluated as well because you too can develop breast cancer. Wow. And so when men come in and they say, or they find out they have breast cancer, it, is it the same? Do they have the same fears and the same reactions as women? Like, what is the difference? Uh, emotionally, uh, sometimes the response is different, but I do think the common reaction is fear. They want to know, can I survive this disease? Um, they're interested in what are the surgical options for them? You know, will this render them disease-free? Can I go back to my activities of daily living? Will I be able to continue to work? So there are some commonalities independent of, uh, of gender. Um, they ask about treatment. What will the treatment mean for them um, in terms of their sexual function? That's a question that tends to come, come up a little more often uh, <laughs> when having conversation <laughs> with men uh, about breast cancer. But we get them through. The men are essentially treated the same way in terms of the surgical aspect of it for uh, breast cancer is that we remove the breast the majority of time in men and we also look at the lymph nodes to ensure that the disease have not left the breast or if it's left the breast that will also dictate the kind of treatment that they'll need post-surgery. So you know Dr. Lawrence there's a lot of conversation about when women should get a mammography mm. and and we're seeing young women get breast cancer as early as 25, 23. And some are told, well, you know, you don't really have to have it looked at till you're 40, maybe 45 and, and, and the likes. What, what do you tell, what would you tell us to, to how to use our judgment about when we should get yeah. this, even though we have doctors? Yeah. So the current guideline is for the average risk woman, which is age 40. 
However, if you have a family history of breast cancer, Bob, that number may be totally different from, for you. And I think that every woman by age 25 to 30 should really have a risk assessment to know what their personal risk for breast cancer is. Because if you have a family history and perhaps a genetic predisposition to the disease or your carrier of the BRCA1 or 2 or any of the other known mutations, your screening starts as early as 25. You're not waiting until 40 you have to begin your screening at 25. And I have patients who come in and they'll say to me, Dr. Lawrence, my mom had breast cancer at age 36 or age 37. Well, you and I know that that 40 guideline is not applicable to that woman. That's a woman that needs to be screened at minimum seven years earlier than when her mom was diagnosed. So I think it's really important to have these candid conversations with your clinician so that you can figure out what your risk is. Because if you're not average risk, then there will be some deviation from that 40 uh, national guideline that's usually utilized as a benchmark. And, and there's a lot of conversation about how to be preventative. Can mm -hmm. we be preventative? What, what can we do to sort of lessen our risk? <laughs> Good luck with that one, right? <laughs> I mean, the number one risk factor for getting breast cancer is by virtue of being a female. You know, and there's not much that you can do. <laughs> much that you can do about it. The second is age. Um, you know, so those are all variables that are outside of our control. I think there's some um, behavioral uh, modification that may help. Because, for example, one we know that alcohol consumption increases our risk for serious oh! cancer. <laughs> We know that tobacco use increases our risk for uh, certain <laughs> breast cancer. Uh, I often say all things in moderation when talking about alcohol consumption. It doesn't mean that you have to completely abstain from it, but those are some of the things. Uh, we know that you know your weight, your BMI is also a contributing factor when it comes to different types of um, breast cancer. But for the most part, I, I tell women there's not a singular causative agent, right, for breast cancer. You can, I have patients with BMI of, you know, 18. Uh, they're, they're thin, they're marathon runners. Um, they don't consume alcohol, they don't smoke, and they still develop breast cancer. Um, so we, I don't have the magical answer as to what to tell you, like to prevent breast cancer. Some of it may be environmental vibes, who knows, you know, um, so that's a tough one to really have a conversation about, but I do encourage my patient that, you know, maintaining a, a, a balanced diet, some form of activity, abstaining from tobacco use, that those are some of the things that you can do from a risk reduction standpoint. So I would imagine, Dr. Lawrence, that you, you stay on top of the latest medical information that comes out around breast cancer. And I would imagine uh, that that information is an ever evolving, uh, uh, the research is ever evolving. Mm -hmm. and, and, and how fast does it, when you're, when you're looking at, at information, how often um, is it evolving and how fast are the, are the, the, the strides and, and the next level kinds of treatments are, mm -hmm. are, are being put out there? I would say at least every two or three years, something big comes out. And a lot of times, it, most of the changes that I've experienced has to do with pharmacology, different drugs that are coming out that are able to treat um, the cancer and being able to treat specific types of cancer. And when I say not, it's no longer one size fits all. For example, you know, we, in the past, any whenever a woman has breast cancer, there are three proteins that we look at on the tumor that helps to drive the type of treatment that they can get. Estrogen, progesterone, and HER2. It gives you information about the biology of your tumor. 
And in the past, any woman, I will tell you, especially premenopausal woman, diagnosed with breast cancer that was greater than a centimeter, they were more likely to get chemotherapy. And a few years ago, we had a study that's called the Taylor X trial. And what that did was it randomized women who had hormone receptor positive, node negative breast cancer. And they looked specifically at the tumor biology. And we're not able to break those women down into different subgroups because we're able to identify that at least 70% of those women who would have traditionally received chemotherapy did not benefit from the chemotherapy. They didn't need chemotherapy. They only benefited from the hormonal therapy. So now we have a test that's called an Oncotype DX and it generates a recurrent score. And I will tell you just about all of the medical oncologists, my colleagues, that are, they use this test to help to guide their treatment. So women who have these more favorable biology tumor, the hormone receptor positive tumor, are now less likely to get chemotherapy. So there's always things that are involved in our field that causes us to pivot and have to do things differently. And I suspect that will only continue into the future as we're able to do more research and we're able to learn more about breast cancer as a whole. I know right now they're thinking about developing a vaccine. Uh, and there is, Whoa. yeah, there is, or I don't have all the details about it, but I know that there, is, there are clinical trials, um, there are different universities across the country that are working on vaccine to breast cancer. Wouldn't that be amazing? That would be a game changer. Right in the fight for for this disease. Yes, it would be. So, so let me switch gears a little bit. How did you know you wanted to be a breast cancer surgeon? How did you know this? And and tell me about where you come from and and your educational pursuits. Uh, so I don't I don't know if I started out wanting to be a breast surgeon. I so I was born and raised in Jamaica. Um, my mom and dad immigrated here when. I was a teenager. Um, it was primarily in pursuit of educational and socioeconomic opportunities for us, uh, the children in particular. And we settled on Long Island. Um, I still have very vivid memories of, you know, being here, experiencing snow for the first time, and <laughs> <laughs> wondering what that stuff on the ground was. And you know, I eventually acclimated. Um, but to be honest with you, Bob, I did not know whether I would be able to go to college or not. Uh, I, you know, I'm the first in my family to attend and graduate um, college. I have very humble uh, beginnings. Uh, the first few years after we emigrated here was quite challenging. And it was, we had setbacks in terms of my, my dad became very ill. He was the breadwinner. At that time, my mom was a homemaker, so the dynamics uh, shifted. But long story short, I landed at Fordham University, um, and, and that was my my Fordham gave me the opportunity that I needed to be here today. I was accepted uh, through the higher education opportunity program there, and I wasn't sure about medicine. I took all the pre medical course, um, but I've always enjoyed teaching. I taught while I was at Fordham to the um, through the summer programs to the local kids in the Bronx and. I wanted to teach. So when I graduated Fordham, I actually joined New York City uh, public school system as an eighth grade health and science teacher. I did not know that. I did. <laughs> I often say that these, these teenagers, they drove me into medicine. <laughs> you know, after I did that, it's, that's when I decided I would apply to medical school because one, I, I really wanted to have 
an impact on a, on a larger scale. I was interested in women's health in particular. I've always enjoyed working with my hands and I figured at least if I became a doctor, I could also continue to teach. I could teach medical students, I could teach other residents. Uh, so I went on to University of Rochester, I did four years of medical school, and this is where mentorship is important because I had the great fortune of meeting Dr. Walter Cooper, um, who had been the first um, PhD uh, chemist to graduate from the university and was just very committed to, to giving back. Um, so he sort of took me under his wing while I was there, both he and his wife, uh, his late wife, Helen. So I had great mentorship while I was there. And I met this uh, breast surgeon, Dr. Gretchen Arndt. And I asked her, I said, you know, I went to the OR with her. I was, I was, I just loved how this woman operated. She controlled the room. I mean, she was just a brilliant surgeon and I could see myself in that role. So I asked her, um, could I spend some time with her? And she said, yes. So I started going to spend some time with her in the clinic and go into the operating room with her. And then I decided, you know what? I could see myself doing this. It allows me to operate so I can use my hands. Two, it allows me to focus on the area of health that I wanted to focus on, which was women's health. And what I liked about breast was that there was some continuity of care there. It wasn't you operate and you never see the patient again. You operate, but these are women that you continue to see for a very long time. You may even see their daughters, their mom, and other family members. So I really enjoy that aspect of it. So here I am today, you know. So, I mean, you are, I mean, there can't be that many Black women surgeons of any sort, let alone breast surgeons. Mm -hmm. So what, what it has been like to sort of, I, I would imagine, Dr. Lawrence, you show up as the only. In several rooms, in several places, <laughs> many times. <laughs> you, you do. Um, and, you know, I often say one of the biggest obstacles that I had to overcome along the journey was believing that I belonged and that I could do this because I didn't know anybody that looked like me who was doing what I wanted to do. So I'm at a point in my career now where I enter these spaces with confidence and knowing within myself that I'm equally as competent. Um, to get the job done. Uh, but you're absolutely right. You're consistently faces where you are the only one. And so I, I know, I know you socially, and mm -hmm. I know that you, you surround yourself um, uh, with the community of folks who sort of um, give you uh, that sister warmth and love. And I think that's important. And I think uh, young women today uh, look toward uh, look are looking for that same kind of commitment. Talk about how important it is to build a community outside of the work that you do. Oh, it has been, I mean, I, I, I don't think I would get through life and the work that I do without my tribe, my village. Um, they are the, the building block. They are there for me, the high lows and in, in, in between. Um, they are the, way, the ones that helped me to tap into um, the inner me and to believe in myself. Um, the kind of um, support infrastructure that you get through that, it's irreplaceable. It's even very hard for me to describe. I mean, the fact that I'm speaking with you this morning was orchestrated by, you know, the president of Jack. You know, it's Karen. I mean, she, she's, she has my back. You know, so to, to surround yourself with that wall of support 
you know, that impervious wall of support, that authenticity, spaces where you're allowed to be yourself at all times. I mean, that has been a game changer for me. And let me just tell people, Jack is the Jamaican American Connection uh, mm -hmm. founded by uh, uh, Karen Holness, who is my glam captain who runs Hair's <laughs> K Salon. Uh, but Jack, Jamaican American Connection is a scholarship um, uh, making organization um, for Caribbean folks and their children to yeah. continue their higher education aspirations, which is important, yeah. I think. Yeah. Because I mean, college is expensive. <laughs> it's very expensive. And I think the mission of the organization it, is rooted in the understanding that education is important. You know, I remember growing up, despite our socioeconomic status, my dad would often emphasize the importance of a good education. He saw education as the great equalizer. Is that, you know, you'd always say, whatever you learn, whatever knowledge you gain, it's the one thing that no one can ever take away from you. So he would always push for it for myself, for my younger brothers. That was always a big component of it is that you must, must, must secure as much knowledge as you possibly can. And I think you see that in Jack, all the efforts revolves around how do we educate and empower our children so that they can become productive members of society and also contribute to making this world a better place for everyone. And I know that you, you do a lot of community outreach and a lot of community work. Like I see you. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the motivation behind being so community active mm -hmm. uh, and what and what and what that means to your life. You know, it's it's fulfilling. I have received so much to get to where I am. I have crossed so many troubled waters, uh, so many bridges, and it's all been people who's helped me along the way. Some of whom are perfect strangers, some people who are told from different walks of life. So I feel that I've gotten so much that now it's my time, my opportunity to give back. And in doing so, it enriches my life. I think I actually get more <laughs> out of these, these experiences <laughs> in community engagement than those who are there. It, it's, 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 it's very gratifying for me. It fills my soul, it replenishes my spirit. And it helps me to, to carry on. And it's funny that you said that because, you know, I'm very, very close to my dad. And, you know, the other day he said to me, Camilla, you're always going. Just know that you can exhaust people. <laughs> 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 you know, and it was sort of my, he was helping me to understand my weakness is that I, for me, it's not work. You know, it comes very naturally for me and that I'm to staying busy and being able to contribute and do my part is fulfilling for me, you know, so. <laughs> and you're a mom, like you have three I children. Two, I have two kids. Two, yeah. two children. I, you know, every time I see your children, they're always in connection with other children. So I don't know <laughs> whose children belong to who, uh, but you have two children. And I know they are swimmers or learning to swim or have learned to swim because they are always in the water when I see them. Now, yeah. Talk about what it means to, and your children are young children. Like, how do you, how do you balance motherhood and being a surgeon and being a community activist uh, in, in, in this world today? Yeah, it's, it's a juggle. It's a constant juggle. And I, I do have uh, support. I'm not doing it alone. 
Um, but you'll notice now my kids are older. I take them to these events with me. You know, my daughter in particular, she, she as soon as she sees me getting dressed, she said, mommy, where are you going today? Can I come? You know, and she started putting on her clothes too, and then Nathan follows suit. You know, so I do bring, <laughs> I do bring. But your kids are so social. <laughs> they are very, very gregarious, you know, and, and now they're at the age now where they can follow instructions. So they'll sit down and, you know, they'll behave, they'll engage. So I do take them along with me, but I do, they are my priority and they know that. So their time set aside, whether it's for, you know, family events, fam dinner together, you know, there are moments that we sit down and we're able to bond. But it's a juggling act, right? Being a, being a mom, being a surgeon, and being very much interested and motivated and having an impact outside of the home, but also in society, is that you're constantly juggling uh, both. But I try not to lose sight of where my uh, priority um, lies. A friend of mine described as an analogy of juggling balls. And sometimes some balls will hit the ground, but there are certain balls that must never hit the ground. Yes. And, you know, and, you know, and that's what I try to do on a day-to-day -day basis. So if there's somebody listening today who, who is considering a, a career in medicine, considering a career in medicine and, and might not have uh, the traditional route or, mm -hmm. or may have to consider an untraditional route, what would mm -hmm. you say to them? I said, if it's your passion, you go for it. See, I'm able to do what I do because it's not work. And I think when I see this as my calling, this is what I was put here to do. So if you've identified medicine, I will tell you when I went to medical school, there were several non-traditional students. Um, there were students who like myself that were on their second career. They started off doing something completely different. It doesn't even have to be medicine related. In fact, I think a lot of medical school now are looking for what they call outside the box thinkers. You know, people who've had life experiences that will contribute and solidify their interests that are coming in with an understanding, a worldwide view and understanding. So that may even be work to your advantage that you're not, you're a non-traditional um, student. There are certain core requirements that are required so that you'll have to complete those courses, but it's never too late. If this is what you see yourself doing for the rest of your life, and this is where you can have an impact, I say go for it. Find a mentor. You know, it, that was one of the things that I learned along the way is that you don't know what you don't know, and mentorship is important. So try to identify somebody who has walked the path that you're attempting to take and see if you can help with, they can help you with some guidance, you know? But you have the gravitas. You've got the gravitas to do whatever you put your mind to. How does a good doctor self-care? What do you, how do you take care of Camelia Lawrence? How do you do that? What do you do? I, I exercise. I'm a big walker whenever. Yes, I, I know you're a walker because you take the most beautiful pictures on your walks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big walker. Um, you know, I don't do as much as I, I should in terms of self-care, and that has to do with time. But I also meditate. Um, and um, I meditate mostly in the mornings. And usually I get up and I write a post. And that's usually something on social media that inspires me and hopefully will inspire somebody else that's reading my Facebook or my Instagram uh, page. But I try to stay centered. Um, I also read a fair bit. Um, I do have a commute to work, so I've got all sorts of podcasts and, you know, audio books that I, I listen to to help me on my 
my journey and just to enrich um, my mind, but I definitely need to do a lot more in terms of self-balance, self-balance and care. That's an area that needs improvement in my life. Yes. I, I think uh, every black woman on the planet is, uh, I don't want to say struggle. We wrestle with how to uh, say no to things, mm. how to put ourselves at the top of our list, yeah. you know, how to relax and have downtime, you know, mm. how to not be busy, how to, how to, you know, sit down and read a book sometimes. It's, it's, yeah. it's a wrestling it's, game. It's tough. And, I, and I think you, you articulated very well. How do you prioritize yourself? I don't think we're, our brains are wired to do that, right? It's, it's, <laughs> like, it's, it's, I'm going to center myself. This is going to be about me, you know? <laughs> And you're like, oh, but I'll, I'll think about me once I go get the things for the kids yeah, and exactly. do the thing at the school and exactly. you know, be at church and all yeah. the things. Yeah. And, and that's, um, you know, I have to say at this stage of my life, boss, I'm going through this transformation and I'm, I am getting a little bit more comfortable in saying no and not overextended myself because at the end of the day, I'm not winning by overextending my, I'm not enjoying if I'm overextended. I don't think those who are going to be participated will enjoy it if I am overextended and I'm not happy to be here. So I'm really now utilizing that no more frequently and a no without explanation because usually yes. I say no, I can't because I'm doing X. Now it's like, I'm unable to at this time. Yes, because no is a complete sentence. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> We all realize that. <laughs> no, it's a complete sentence. That's it. <laughs> well, I, I, I so enjoyed this conversation. I've been waiting for this conversation for a long time. As I said to people, I see, I see you out socially. We are friends. Um, mm -hmm. But this was really special to sort of have you on to talk about your area of expertise still in the month of October, which is breast cancer awareness. Uh, but breast cancer awareness goes beyond October. October so you know don't feel like if you didn't do it in October get it done in November <laughs> yeah absolutely you know and get your mammogram it's it's year-round early detection um you know and mammography saves lives you know one of these I want to point out before we we leave is that not all breast cancer presents as lump I'll have women who come in to examine my breast I don't feel anything well, some breast cancer may just present as microcalcifications or just a change within the breast tissue that you're not going to feel an exam. Even myself, as a surgeon who does this for a living, will not appreciate it on a clinical exam, which is why mammography is so important that you get the picture taken so that we can really get a good look at the breast tissue and make sure we're not missing anything. And as I often say, you are worth it. And you have yes. to take care of yourself in order to be able to take care of others. And that, my friends, is a wrap because I don't know what else to say after that. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Lawrence. I so appreciate you. And I look forward to seeing you in real life soon. Yes, and you know we will. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of your day. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, K-Holeness. I appreciate you too, my love. Harry, play us out. Thank you. And uh, I'll see you on Monday. Have a very good weekend. Get those mammograms, sisters. Get them. <laughs>